So good evening. It's nice to be back. Some of you don't know I've been away for about 10 weeks. So I thought I would share some stories tonight and then kind of relate them to a teaching about how we work with our minds. And what I have are some stories about uh, nature, which is really about the Dharma. The, the word Dharma or Dhamma has many different translations. Um, it actually has many different meanings. It's not that we just don't know how to translate it. It can be you know, just the, the teachings that the Buddha offered. It can also be the natural laws that operate. It can also be phenomena, phenomena of the mind that we experience are also called dhammas. So it has a lot to do with nature, with the way things are, and the, you know, the basis of practice is that we suffer because we don't understand the way things are. You know, we're not seeing things correctly. And it turns out that studying the natural world gives us some insight into the way the universe lawfully operates. And we can often make analogies to the mind that are useful. So I want to share three different stories, and each one leads to a question that points toward an area that the Buddha says we need to examine carefully to see if there's suffering there. So first is a story about bees. And uh, when I was just beginning the sabbatical I just took, I, I took a retreat at the Insight Retreat Center in Scotts Valley. I did that for the first week. And so I guess that was sometime in May. And one thing that was happening during that retreat was that there was a swarm. Bees were, were swarming, as they sometimes do at, around that time of year, especially. And it was because a hive had broken up, and the um, half of the hive had left and was looking for a new place to live, basically. And so they hadn't found that yet, and were all clustered around a branch with the, the queen is in the middle, and all the other bees cluster around her. That's how it works. And so um, Insight Retreat Center didn't really know how to deal with this, and they were afraid that the yogis would get scared by having a bunch of bees around. You could even hear them. And so they called, believe it or not, the Santa Cruz Bee Guild. There is such a thing. And they sent a guy out um, who does, he does this for free. It's kind of nice. He does bee transport. <laughs> and his job was to get these bees off of the branch. And he was remarkably confident about it. He said, oh, no problem. Um, I'll get them from the branch and I'll put them in this box that I brought and then I'll put them in my truck and just drive them away. And I thought, how are you going to get a thousand bees from a branch into a box? But he did it. It only took about an hour. 
Actually, if he can reach the branch, he just cuts it and takes the branch, but this branch was not easily cuttable like that. Um, so I'm not necessarily giving you a lesson in apiary management, um, but the, the interesting thing about this situation was that he was very interested in the queen because the bees are protecting the queen. That's their job. That's what they know how to do. And if they don't have a hive, then they just surround her in this ball. And so he would uh, disturb them a little bit and sort of gather up a bunch of them on a flat plate that, that had uh, honeycomb on it, essentially, that shape, which they understand. And so they would go onto the plate that had that shape and he would kind of push it into the middle of the bees. They weren't getting angry, don't worry. <laughs> um, and his aim was to get the queen. And he said, if I get the queen onto uh, one of these plates and put it into the box, which was basically like a file cabinet, you could put a whole bunch of these honeycomb plates in there, um, then the bees will realize that she's not there and they will look and they will eventually realize that she's gone in the box and then they'll all follow. And so, you know, it sounds simple in principle, but it was interesting to watch because he couldn't quite tell if he'd gotten the queen in his little sweeps. He would look for her, but, you know, it's not real, can't always see an individual bee. And so you had to just kind of watch the collective motion of the bees. And, you know, after he'd done a few of these plates, he said, oh, look, there's a change in the, in the energy. He's more of an expert than me. I don't know that I could see it right away, but he said they're going to go. And so he, you know, he moved a few more, but basically he just waited at that point. And sure enough, after, you know, half an hour or so, there were only a few bees left because they'd realized that the queen wasn't there and had, you know, moved over. So this, this reminded me very much of the, the way we have in our own mind a sense that there's a queen bee. We call it me or I. And a lot of our thoughts and actions swarm around that to protect it, right? And there's this sense of, you know, everything is oriented around that center point. Um, and if you mess with it too much, they might get angry. <laughs> but there can be, of course, shifts in our sense of who we are. Sometimes they're natural uh, changes. Often they're just natural changes throughout life. You don't feel like the exactly the same person as when you were 10 years old, right, or 20. So there's been a shift, and the thoughts and feelings and body sensations have moved along with it. And um, sometimes the shift is radical. You know, I used to volunteer in the uh, hospital as a spiritual care volunteer, and for a while I worked in the rehab unit, which is not drug rehab. It, it was um, physical rehab from spinal or brain injuries. And you get people in there who have had a, a radical shift in how they are. Uh, maybe their legs are paralyzed or they've had a stroke, something like that. It's a big shift in a short time. And it, they're, they're not quite, they, they look like those bees that were halfway through the process. The queen's over there, but a bunch of the bees are still on the branch. And there's this reorganizing process that has to go on. 
And we'll all experience it throughout our lives also, just through the process of change and eventually, of course, aging and illness and death. But the, the Buddha suggests that the problem is the queen, actually, and the sense that we have this, um, this center that is so vital to protect and organize around. Maybe the analogy breaks down a little bit because bees really need that. And without a queen, they're, they are lost. They can't survive. But actually, for us, it's, um, the activity is much calmer and easier uh, when we're not so focused, even if it's just a little release around that queen bee or king bee that we have in the center of our being. So maybe the question that emerges from this story is, what are you protecting? Where is your center around which your thoughts buzz? What needs to be there or needs to not be there that you have to protect in a certain way? Maybe it's your job or your relationship or your health, your family status in some way, something. So it's an interesting question. It's not meant to have just one single answer. It's, it's one of those practice questions that we ask ourselves maybe from time to time, especially if we're suffering. What am I protecting here that's causing all this buzzing and swarming? Okay, and then the, the second story is a story about um, astronomy. So when I was doing my travels, one of the places I went was the Lowell Observatory, which is in Flagstaff, Arizona. And it was, it's so named because it was founded by Percival Lowell, who um, was a scientist of the last century, who looked particularly at Mars. That was his thing. And he's, he thought that there were um, canals on Mars, like big channels of water that had been built by an intelligent species. And he had maps that looked like kind of a, he thought it was an irrigation and agriculture system uh, for the whole planet. Um, and he drew these maps of things that, you know, that looked like channels that were, you know, planet size, you know, the planet's this big and he's got these, you know, channels going over it, which would just be massive, massive construction projects. The only thing you can see from space on the Earth is the, my understanding is the Great Wall of China. And that's a pretty big thing. And there's only that one. So he imagined these big channels and he drew detailed pictures of them. And other astronomers couldn't see them as clearly as he could. Um, but, you know, the telescopes weren't that good back then, and he was a powerful guy and so forth. And later, eventually, we had better telescopes, and there are no channels on Mars. There's no running water on Mars. It's too cold. There was an item in the news last week that they've discovered a lake. Um, so there's um, some possibility for, for there being water. Of course, it's not a liquid lake. But anyway, this whole thing about the channels and the canals um, is not correct. And so, you know, what, what was going on? Uh, so at the, at the Lowell Observatory, there's a little section on Percival Lowell, of course. And what they say, the, the current understanding for what he was seeing, 
is that he was seeing in the telescope lens the reflection of the veins in his eye. I don't know if it's true, but you know you have to understand. You have to explain why this happened for a serious scientist. He wasn't just making it up. Um, you know, complete fabrication. He was seeing something that was not correct. Was, um, so possibly the veins in his eye, and he was just so sharp-eyed that he could see them. And other people looking in the lens kind of didn't notice and were, you know, looking more at the planet. So I love this. It's so dharmic uh, in that, you know, we look out upon the world, but what we're seeing <laughs> is highly influenced by uh, our own filters, our own way of being. And this is not wrong. Uh, it's how it is. We have our set of perceptions and our mind and our body and the way it works. And there's no way we could experience the world without that apparatus. And so the question is kind of cleaning it up so that we see things as they are. But what there's a quote about this, what we, um, we don't see people as they are, we see them as we are, something like that. We've all had the experience I'm sure, especially maybe even more as practitioners, where we really thought something was true or something was true about someone or about a situation. And we were so convinced and we had the whole story lined up. And then, you know, we learned one little fact and it was just completely wrong. And we suddenly saw, oh my gosh, this was an entire fabrication um, based on you know, one, one or two assumptions that I didn't know were assumptions. And so we need to continually be checking for that in our practice. Maybe the question here is, what are you projecting? What are we projecting? And, you know, it is possible to see completely without projection at moments, but often, you know, we're living our life and we, we're going to have our projections. So there's a wonderful quote from the, um, the monk Analio, who says, true objectivity is the full acknowledgement of our subjectivity, which is beautiful. It's really humane and compassionate way of seeing things. We fully acknowledge, yes, I have this karma, this um, background that I bring into this moment. How could I not? Otherwise, I'm not here, basically. And fully acknowledging that uh, is what allows us to, to let it go and to somehow rise above or transcend uh, that, that conditioning that we have. The unconditioned is not a rarefied blank place of no personality, no sense of personness or sense of individuality. It's a place where we're not influenced by our conditioning so that we can respond completely with compassion and wisdom. We're not dragged down by our patterns, completely overwhelmed by our lenses. So this is an art. And so um, learning again and again to see what it is that is the veins in our eye and what is actually present that, we're, that is... Uh, being observed by us. So what are you projecting? Another question that doesn't have a single answer is not gonna have the same answer over time. 
but can be a useful thing to just ask ourselves now and then, what might I be projecting here? What is coming up from my past that's influencing? And can I acknowledge that and be aware of it so that it doesn't get in the way of compassion and wisdom? Okay, and my, my third nature story is about trees. There are, um, you can even see one in, in Henry Cowell Park. There are trees that are called uh, albino redwoods. They're, you know, they're redwoods that don't have chlorophyll in the leaves. So and they're not quite white, but they're kind of silvery. You know, they don't have the, the green, um, you know, some aberration in the way the, you know, the tree's genetics worked, and it just doesn't have that, that, uh, that part. And so this is a challenge for the tree because, you know, it can't, it can't feed itself. You know, trees need chlorophyll in order to produce sugar from the sun to produce their energy, basically. I guess they make starch, not sugar. Um, so albino redwoods tend to be small and they have to live very close to another tree and basically entwine their roots with that tree and that's how they can get energy is that they uh, borrow it, shall we say, take it from the other tree. So they're a little bit of a drain on that other tree and they're always small, they can't grow as big and tall as the other tree. And there's a little bit of literature about these kind of trees. And um, I don't know it deeply. I haven't read the, you know, the actual research papers, but the popular literature that you can find about it online uh, is a little bit interestingly critical <laughs> of these trees. And I was a little shocked to read this, but there are articles that say, you know, how did evolution produce trees like this? They are completely useless. They have you know, only a draining function on the other trees. It's very negative. You know, it's like anything that can't stand up for itself and make a living it doesn't deserve to survive. You know, it's like this is not a nice attitude. But you, you get a little of this flavor in the literature about them. And there's a real question. Why do they exist? Why have they persisted? Why is something like this allowed in nature? Um, which I found a little odd. But then I found this one paper that had where a researcher had gotten into this and had discovered that uh, albino redwoods have, as some other part of the mutation that they have, they have an increased ability to absorb, to absorb toxins from the soil. So when there's an albino redwood tree growing, say at the base of another tree, the soil gets cleaner around that tree. And so the, the other tree benefits from that. And so there's a, a hidden uh, symbiosis or trade-off between them where one of them is purifying the soil, but it can't feed itself. And in exchange, it gets uh, the energy of the tree that is supporting it. So I guess the biologists can relax. Um, we understand why these horrible non-self-supporting beings exist, <laughs> as if any beings are self-supporting, right? But I found it interesting, and I don't know, there's something to me kind of emotionally moving about the albino redwoods. They're very pretty, actually. 
I recommend going and seeing the one in Henry Cowell. It's on that um, that easy redwood loop trail that you can take just um, that's flat kind of around the nature center there. One of the stations is, uh, is an albino redwood. So I guess the question that comes from this is, what benefit are you not seeing? So consider a situation where your mind is saying, why does this exist? It's terrible. Everything that's coming from it is bad. And ask, what is the benefit? Doesn't mean it's unmitigatingly beneficial. There are things that are difficult, challenging, uh, educational in various ways. Um, but maybe there's some benefit there. Maybe there's some way that our mind could relate to that situation um, that shows that it actually brings about something important. I guess I'll, this now reminds me of one more story, which is that um, while I was um, while I was traveling, I did some hiking and I picked up a tick while I was out there, which I discovered later uh, in the bathroom. And um, ticks, I can say, are you know a little bit like this albino redwood. It's like, why do these things exist? They're not very beneficial for humans. <laughs> I don't know that they do anything positive. And then I realized, oh well, actually. Because um, I did have a moment where I had removed the tick and was standing in the bathroom, so there was the option of just throwing it in the toilet and being done with it. And I admit that my mind was not completely pure and had that thought because it's the easiest thing to do when you have a tick in your hand. But um, I immediately realized, no, no, that doesn't work for me. So I took it outside, a little bit away from the building, and let it go, because um, it wasn't dead after I pulled it out. Um, so there's the possibility for mindfulness and compassion and ethical conduct enabled by the tick. This is a good thing, actually. It brought me a little bit of happiness to see that I had chosen not to kill it, and a small amount of merit for uh, continuing a life so even ticks <laughs> do bring benefit. So then, how does this relate to, you know, maybe the more classical teachings? These are all good dharmic stories about nature. But there is actually a, a way to relate these to a teaching that the Buddha gave on what are called the four floods. Four floods, and I love that um, word because the floods are intended to describe uh, movements in our mind that overwhelm us. And you know those things where afterwards we realize, ah, you know, why did I do that? Or where was my practice in that moment? Or you know, how did I lose mindfulness? Or oh, you know, with that person, I can never do wise speech. You know, whatever it is, we've all got those places where our mind gets overwhelmed, and one of the triumphs of practice is where we get to a point and we realize we're, you know, we're not overwhelmed by something that used to overwhelm us. That's one of the markers of progress. But um, these four floods are interesting. Okay, they are the flood. There are four of them. 
And one is the flood of sense desire. So we can get overwhelmed by the desire to experience something pleasant, basically. So this is the desire where we have the third cup of coffee, even though it's going to make us totally wired, or the second piece of cake, even though uh, it's going to be too much. Or we buy the you know, we buy the donut, even though we were walking by the bakery and said, I'm not going to buy it, I'm not going to buy it. And five minutes later, we've got it. <laughs> you know, we got overwhelmed. Um, so overwhelmed by sense desire of various kinds. I guess I gave fairly gross examples, but there are more subtle ones. You know, the, that refined piece of artwork that we just have to own <laughs> or, you know, um, missing an appointment because we had to be on that beautiful beach one minute longer, something like that. So that's one. The, another is the flood of becoming, which is a way of saying wanting to be something, wanting to have a role or a status or be seen in a certain way or be able to call ourselves X. And this is a very deep and subtle one. So this is, at the gross level, the desire for power and status. But even if you don't have that, what about the desire to be liked? The desire to be, you know, um, seen by your friends as somebody who is successful. The desire to feel that you accomplish certain things. To own a home. You know, to... Um, a pet owner, something like that, you know, and, and the things that we don't care about so much, like maybe if you do have this, please forgive me, but maybe nobody really needs to scale Mount Everest and get to the top of it. Like if you didn't do that in your life, it would be okay. So, you know, it's in that case, we can say, well, you know, that would might be nice. It would probably be a big thing, but you know, I'm not going to put in the work to do that. Easy enough decision. But the ones where you are caught, <laughs> it feels very different, especially if we can't achieve it. You know, there are things that we can't be. It's like sense desire, sense pleasures. There are ones that we can't have. Or there are moments where it doesn't happen because feeling tone changes all the time, pleasant, unpleasant. We can't get a uniform experience of sense pleasure. And there are some that we simply can't have. Similarly, there are some things that we can't be. And if you want desperately to be one of those, you're really going to suffer. And especially this applies also to losing status. So you lose your job, for example. If you really liked that job, really cared about it, really derived your happiness from being that. Huge suffering. So this is one not to, not to sneeze at, shall we say. And it goes very deep. And this is a, maybe a little bit... So these first two, sense, desire, and becoming, I'm going to relate to the bee story. So this is, these are things that we protect, our, our pleasant, positive experiences, and our feeling of who we are. This is about the queen bee, or the king bee. And uh, this is something to really watch, because it's a big source of suffering. The four floods are the serious ways that we go get overwhelmed and suffer. I don't know that they're meant to be comprehensive, but they're pretty comprehensive when you listen. I'll get to the other two. 
So the Buddha laid these out as, you know, hey, pay attention to these things because this is where it can really hurt and this is where our practice can focus. So our sensual desire and becoming, our protection of that queen or king bee. And then the third flood is the flood of views. And this one is even more subtle and actually very even more deeply rooted than the first two. And it's about, um, it's about our values, our beliefs, our ideas, our opinions. You know, we may say that, oh, well, these things change, and they do, but we get very, very identified. Politics, this is politics, and ultimately war. Um, are even down to just simple petty arguments with people often come down to, I care about this, you care about that. I can't understand why you care about that and why you don't care about what I care about. Huge suffering. Huge. We try very, so hard to get our tribe, and what we mean is the people who aren't going to challenge my views and beliefs. Not that we should seek out difficult situations, challenging views. Um, I'm not saying that, but just to be aware at how quickly, how quickly that can lead to anger or to desire, even, maybe even especially among the people who are very close to us, who we expect and demand to always support our viewpoint, and then they don't. Our family members, our partner, sometimes we're the cruelest with them, and we cut slack to the stranger that we don't know so well. This is a subtle one, of course, because we're not asked to give up all of our views and values. You have to have them. Practice rely. The first step of the Eightfold Path is wise view. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's not that we're not going to have them. I don't think we could live without views, and living without values would be unethical. So these are critical for the whole process of the path. But the question is, are we clinging to them such that we suffer? Very subtle. This is something that we'll work with continually over the course of practice. So I'm going to relate this to the Percival Lowell story and the question, what are you projecting? We don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. We project our view of how it should be, and then we suffer because it doesn't match that. And that comes down to some underlying value. And there's a lot of deep practice that has to go with how we can live in the world as a, a, a being with principles and wanting to help in some way. If you want to help, it's because you think the world can be better. You think this suffering could end. You think you can serve and offer something. Please do. <laughs> but how to do that without suffering? How to do that with the equanimity of the results Going either way, it can still be okay. It's the process. And this is a lot of deep work for us. And also questions of how we can really serve, um, given that our mind has biases until we're completely free. We have places that we can't see what it is that we're holding on to, what it is that we're, where we're seeing the veins of our eyes and what's really there. And so, you know, we have situations where we think that we're serving or trying to help, but it's, it's not helpful or it's being clouded by our, um, our unawareness. 
sometimes we're not aware, for example, that we're carrying ways of being based on our race or our class or our educational level or our culture. And we bring those into a situation and um, other people don't feel that. So learning to see what it is that we're carrying, our subjectivity, fully acknowledging, learning to fully acknowledge that so that, as I said in the earlier segment on the Percival Lowell story, so that we can uh, really offer compassion and wisdom in the world. This is related to the flood of views. And then the final flood, which is the most subtle, is has already been, these are all interrelated, has already been alluded to in the others. The fourth flood is the flood of ignorance. And that doesn't mean that we're stupid. Ignorance has a particular implication in our culture, sometimes of non-intelligence, but that's not what's referred to. It's more the actual root of the word to ignore. Ignorance is about what we're ignoring. And so um, this is, of course, the process of needing to see more and more deeply into that subject, subjective nature of what we're bringing, of our karma, of our views, of our values. And ignorance is ultimately what prevents us from being free. The places that we can't see uh, wrap around our ankles and prevent us from walking freely. So this is about the albino redwood. This relates to the fact that there may be things that we're not seeing. Um, and that's what causes us to react, what causes us to say, this is wrong, this is right, this is how it should be, this is how it not should not be. Um, actually, despite all of our mind's objections and projections, things just are as they are. And ignorance is about, cutting through ignorance is about seeing things exactly as they are and um, not needing them to be another way. Another word for suffering or dukkha is wanting things to be other than they are. And that's a very long lesson to learn. So what are we protecting? What are we, what are we projecting? And what benefits are we not seeing? What is it that we're not seeing? I think the more that we allow these kinds of questions to inform our practice as we just go about our daily life, continue to be mindful. Considering these starts to chip away at some of those barriers that allow us to get flooded. Maybe that's a mixed metaphor. Some of those weak spots <laughs> that allow us to get flooded and overwhelmed so that we can walk more freely, act more creatively, live more easily right here in this particular life as we are. We don't need to go and be something radically different, although it might happen over the course of the path, I don't know, but um, right here in the stuff of our life, gradually, gradually reducing the, the ways in which we create suffering 
so that we can ourselves be free and, and help others. So I think I'll stop there and just ask if there are any questions or comments. Your own stories about nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.